0: Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight, I uh, intend, it is my intention to explain this concept of Shiva in yoga, which is a concept which produces sometimes uh, very diversified reactions, because Shiva is the name of a person, a personality, a character which is seen as part of the Indian mythology and part of the Hinduistic religion. And that's why in the moment when we teach yoga, and we claim to teach yoga in a very rational and in a very even way, and referring to Shiva, at least as great teacher of yoga, and also referring to Shiva in the concept of Kashmiri Shaivism, <clears throat> which is coming up next week and next week again in a retreat, automatically produces a sensation that something in yoga, something in the practice of Agama, is uh, of a Hinduistic nature, is of a sectarian nature, it's of a cultish nature. And um, I intend to show as that as always, There is a very deep symbolism and that we are referring to some concrete energies and forces. And uh, this question came to me, was addressed to me to speak tonight about this, especially because of the coming of the Kashmiri Shaivism workshop and then retreat, where people understand that Kashmiri Shaivism is in a certain way, it's a form of yoga, it is a form of spiritual practice But then at the same time, Kashmiri means comes from Kashmir. What have we got to do with Kashmir all in all, both as practitioners and as teachers? And there is the bigger issue of Shaivism. Shaiva, Shaivism sounds like a part of a Hindu religion. And therefore, for some people, it's like uh, it, it raises some question marks, at least in the meaning of how is this integrated with yoga? That's why I will want to give a few explanations and I made a bit of a diagram there which is not very visible to all of you. You can consult it later. It's just one of the graphic simple diagrams which you use here in Agama for illustrating some symbols, some principles, some archetypes. And um, I hope it will, the uh, understanding this thing, it's something which I explain partly in the Kashmir Shaivism intro, but I I hope that explaining this um, principle, explaining this matter, it will help you understand better spiritual practice in general and some of the forces which are at work there. Uh, Let's start with, uh, first of all, the first statement, the first thing to be shown is that uh, generally humanity tries to create a sort of personification of the divine. In yoga, we can say there are seven levels of the universe, and the energy as you go higher becomes higher and higher frequency. So there is energy on the chakras from muladhara to sahasrara. There are seven planes of the universe, and the first plane of the universe is the physical plane, the most gross part of the universe, it is the tip of the iceberg, the visible part, and some people think that that's the only thing which exists in this universe, and then we are moving up along the chakras into the etheric world, astral world, and so on, until at the level of Sahasrara, we reach to a level which is famed that the energy is like universal, the Plane number seven, as we can call it, the seventh plane, the ultimate plane, the one which corresponds to the highest, is a place where we reach to the mother of all energies, to the energy of energies. At the lower levels, the energy can be more fiery, more watery, more of this, more of that, more dense, more subtle. But the understanding, the general energetic understanding which we give to people is that at the highest level, we're having a sort of a quintessence. We're having a sort of ultimate synthesis, exactly as in the concept which was sought after so dearly by Albert Einstein many years ago when he thought that if we have gravitational energy, and if we have electromagnetic energy, and if we have nuclear energy of two types, weak and strong, all these energies, and perhaps others which we don't fully understand what they are, like what energy allows telepathy, for example, to happen, that all these energies may have a common source, that there must exist a mother energy, Albert Einstein, in his speculations, has called it a unified field of energy, an energy which is beyond electromagnetism, beyond gravitation, which is a sort of a unified energy. That concept exists in a mystical way, in a spiritual way, in yoga, especially in tantric yoga, that as you go through the chakras, the energy is getting closer and closer, and at the last level, We are talking exactly about this universal energy, the mother energy, the essential energy, the undifferentiated energy, the one energy which creates everything. And we can tell to people there exists an energy which is even beyond space and time. Therefore, there is an energy which is eternal, which doesn't vary with the differences in space and time. There exists an energy which is extremely subtle, which is the source of everything else. There exists, therefore, an energy which is beyond life and death. There exists an energy which is omnipresent, which is embodying other and other of these characteristics like being absolute. And many people getting in contact with yoga, they say, yeah, you know what? I'm fed up and tired with this concept of God from Christianity or from Islam or some other religions, that there is an old man with a big white beard who is supposed to be a tyrant and a jealous, possessive creature and this god seems to be a total jerk sometimes because there comes a tsunami and quarter of a million people die just like that and so on so it's like i'm there are many people who come and say i'm not a religious person i'm a little bit atheistic or agnostic or something all this concept of religion especially as presented in the religions uh, in the common religions in the world is like abhorrent to me But when I come to yoga, I can actually, I can relate to the idea that there exists a universal energy, that there exists an ocean of energy, and that to this energy, there corresponds a level of consciousness, there corresponds a state of being. And therefore, people who, funnily enough, they reject all this personified images of God, considering them childish, primitive, manipulative, or whatever, they can relate beautifully to the idea that there exists an energy which is beyond any energy, that there exists a common energy of this universe, and that we can connect with it, and that if we work on the crown chakra, we can feel it, and we can amplify it in our being, and all that. That's why in a first stage, especially in modern times, many people are very comfortable with a sort of an abstract image of God. If you tell me that God, in your yoga view, is a sort of a universal energy that pervades everything like an ocean, like an invisible ocean, a uh, something which is beyond space and time of the nature of the absolute, and through yoga you can become part of it, you can share into it, you can commune with it, then I'm, I'm happy about that. That doesn't sound impossible. That doesn't sound stupid, mystical, sectarian. I, of course, if I want to be a real yogi, I cannot accept just a hypothesis. I would like to feel it, to experience it. I would like to practically be able to do so. I hope that if I will work six years on my crown chakra, I will become a big yogi or yogini. I will be deep into yoga And that I will start sharing into this, that I will start experiencing this. And then it will not be just a theory. It will be something which at least 10%, 20%, 50% I can experience. I have a personal experience into that. That's why in the beginning many people like this Vedantic type of attitude of talking about an absolute something which is absolute with a capital A, something which is absolute, which is eternal, infinite, immutable, perfect, something which is beyond space and time, beyond the mind itself, so even the mind cannot understand this thing which is above it, which is more complex, which is more refined, which is supreme in a way. Humanity, during its history has tried to give a form to this infinite absolute thing because the human mind and the human body are conceived in such a way that we cannot really connect. Like, we are being told that Buddha went for the absolute and he reached a magnificent, eternal state of consciousness full of bliss and so, which was called nirvana. And we are being told that other and other gurus and saints and seers, they have had this kind of longing for reaching a great freedom, an absolute freedom, an absolute consciousness, an absolute knowledge, a divine, an absolute state of consciousness. And for many people, it's like, What can motivate you to go there? Like, how is the motivation of a human being to unite with something which you can't even understand? It's something which is beyond understanding itself. Then, why do I want to go there? It's like I'm searching for something which I never knew. I'm searching for something which is not knowable. How am I then motivated? Basically, what I'm trying to say is that conceiving this ultimate level, beyond space and time, this something, which is absolute, perfect, eternal, immutable, conceiving it just like that doesn't give any feeling. We hear that Christian mystics or bhakti yogis from India, they love the God. How can you love the Absolute? The absolute is kind of too abstract. You don't have an emotion towards it. You don't have a longing. Like if you present God like a loving father, you say, I want to melt in the arms of my cosmic father. I am the prodigal son and I have been lost for thousands of lifetimes in samsara. And now I want to do yoga and I want to go home. This is the very meaning of the word religion. Re-ligo. Lego to connect, to tie together. Religo, to reconnect like I was once with God and I lost my way in the labyrinth. And now I have the opportunity to go back home, to return back to what I really am, to my fundamental nature. This is possible, but then you personify the idea of God. Like God is something which you can love, which you can miss, which you can long for. But in the moment when the idea of absolute is too abstract, then you can't connect with it. That's why, for practical purposes, many spiritual teachers and many spiritual traditions of humanity, they have tried to actually make God a little bit palatable. If there is an infinite cosmic reality, then the human being must be able to understand something about it. And for example, in India, I'm following one of the ideas, one of the lines of thought from India. In India, they have said, what does this cosmic consciousness do? Well, it creates the galaxies, it creates the stars, it creates the planets, it makes possible the appearance of life on those planets, that life becomes intelligent and conscious. And thus, we can say that this ocean of consciousness, this original energy, among others... Creates It creates the universe. So suddenly, this idea of God has got a shape. I can think, okay, this kind of God thing is a creator. So I'm saying glory to the creator that has created the universe. I long for the creator. I wish to know my maker. But the divine consciousness is not only a creator. A creator, it's one of its functions. It's one of its many functions. And that's why if I call this universal consciousness, this absolute consciousness, this ultimate consciousness of the universe, if I call it creator, I already just am taking only a chunk of it. It's a slice of it. There is a part, an aspect, an energy, a force pertaining to the universal consciousness which creates. But... There are others which do other things. In India, in the primary forms of the Vedic spirituality, they focused specially on three aspects. They said, we can, this God which is great, this God which is all and everything, and then you can't relate to it. It's too big, too abstract. We can start seeing concrete parts of it, like faces, exactly as you'd have an ocean, and this ocean is nothing, it's just a surface, an endless surface of water. And then on the water you can have some ripples, some triangles, some circles, some patterns, maybe a face coming out of the water. And I say, oh, this is one image of God. It's a face of God. It's a facet. It doesn't represent everything. It's just a partial apparition, but it makes me focus on it. I'm unable to focus on the clear surface of the ocean but i can focus on something concrete that's why in the ancient vedic uh, spirituality they simply said okay we can agree that the divine has three functions and they created three faces of god they subdivided god in three and they said if you put all these three together it's kind of you got everything so these are divisions of the infinite. But in the moment when you make them divisions, you put a word on them, you put a concept on them. There is an idea behind them and therefore you can think about them. And so to make the long story short, they said the universe or the divine consciousness can act as a creator, which from spirit, from transcendental spirit, materializes the universe in terms of energy and the chakras, it's like you roll out a carpet. Imagine that you have a rolled carpet in Sahasrara and you just roll it down to Muladhara. No, like you create Ajna, Vishuddha, Anahata, Manipura, Svadhisthana, all the way to Muladhara. No? And then there is a force which kind of creates, which manifests, which materializes, which does Shambhavi Mudra and materializes the universe till the last atom, till the last particle of the universe. And then, of course, through opposition, immediately, we need to have a destroyer. We need to have an annihilator, a force which terminates things. There is a force which rolls out the carpet, and then necessarily there must exist a force which rolls the carpet back. So there is a creator of the universe and a destroyer of the universe. And in between them, we need to have, like I made with those three arrows there we need to have something which maintains the universe while it exists. As the Hindus call it, a day of Brahma. 340 billion years, there is a day of Brahma. So in that day, something, there is a force which neither allows it to completely create and create and create and create, nor to destroy, destroy, or if you want to resorb, To kind of suck it back, dematerialize it. These two forces become equal and there is a sort of line of balance which kind of keeps the universe existing for a huge duration of time. This third part has been called a preserver. So the divine consciousness, abstract as it is, it acts as a creator at some moments and in some aspects. It acts as a preserver. Maintaining the status quo, maintaining the existence of the creation, and it can act as a resorber or as a destroyer, which means something which sucks it back, which takes it back. Basically, this is uh, referring to the structure of the universe as understood in the Vedic and Vedantic philosophy, that the universe is originally, as soon as the first division appears, the first division is the division between spirit and matter. The spirit, which as I wrote there on the diagram, is called Purusha. That's the Sanskrit original word for spirit, for pure spirit. And Prakriti, the word which means nature, or if you want in a more Hegelian or even Marxist understanding, which means matter. Spirit and matter. Spirit and uh, nature. And these two aspects, which are represented in our diagrams here in Agama, the matter as an egg with seven sub-levels to it, that being nature, the universe, and on top of it, because it refers to Sahasrara, refers to the crown chakra, so to preserve the similarity with the microcosm, on top of it, symbolically, a cloud, something which is represented like black, and something which is like spirit. Beyond space, beyond time, beyond energy, beyond thoughts, beyond classification. Something which by the words of philosophy would be called transcendental. In philosophy there are two words which refer to spirit and nature. Spirit is transcendental, which means it transcends space, it transcends time, it transcends authorship and causality. And it's indescribable, basically. And one aspect which is called immanent, which means all of this, either we're talking about physical objects or we're talking about energies like the energy of the sun, the energy of the earth. This is all nature. It's all immanent. So the universe is a dance between Purusha and Prakriti, which the tantrics and that creates a very severe confusion. That's one of the reasons for which I'm doing this speech, this satsang tonight. Uh, The tantrics have called this duality between Purusha and Prakriti, between spirit and nature, Shiva and Shakti. Like Shiva is transcendental spirit and Shakti is immanent nature, immanent energy. And between these two, there is a dance. Like in the beginning of the day of Brahma, the universal consciousness vomits like the universe materializes it. So from spirit There emerges creation. That creation is kept alive by the preserving force. And when the time is up, it is sucked back and it goes back into transcendental spirit. These three forces of creation, which were conceived by the old Vedic thinkers many, many years ago, they allowed to the ancient Hindus... To have a sort of a more concrete image of God. Like I can look at God as creator. I can look at God as preserver. And I can look at God as destroyer. These three faces of God. They have received three names. And those names are very, very famous in Hinduism. And they exist until today. Those being the names written in the end of the board there. As Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva. Brahma is that part of God which materializes, creates. Vishnu is that part of God, the preserver, that keeps things in balance for a long, long time. And Shiva is the one who finishes it off when the time is coming. These forces represent a deep metaphysical analysis of reality. For example, Shiva, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, they manifest in your body at all the times. There is constantly matter assimilated in your body and new cells are being created. There is constantly a preservation and equality between assimilation and catabolism and disassimilation. And there is constantly a number of stuff, matter which is eliminated from your body and cells which die. We can say that your own body and your own being is constantly created, maintained, and destroyed. It's not that you were created 30 years ago when you are born and then the creation has stopped. The creation works even now. Even now as you speak, as I speak, as we speak here, new cells and new matter is created in your body. So it's the same with the universe. It's not that the universe was created 7000 years ago by God, now it comes somehow endures and then there will come a day when God will hit it with a hammer and just take it away, and it will not exist. Creation, preservation, and destruction, they happen every second. Every second, elementary particles are coming out of the void. Every second, things are turning back into the void. And thus, the theoretically, we say, oh, but there is the creation of the universe and the end of the universe... These are very low chakra understandings. It's for people who don't have an abstract intelligence and who cannot visualize abstract phenomena. And then you need to say the universe was created from the water. The spirit of God was floating over the waters and God said, let there be light. And then there was light and God created the heaven and the earth and the sun and the moon. That's This is how myths and legends are being done. And the purpose of them is to make people with simple mind, without abstract intelligence, have a sort of a legend, a myth have a sort of allegory by which they can understand. The truth is that the creation, preservation and destruction, they happen all the time and they happen simultaneously. They are present here and now all the time. So where is the catch? Like where does this come into the spiritual practice? This comes into the spiritual practice like this. The idea generally in spirituality, it differs the way it is applied in tantric spirituality or in Vedantic spirituality. But it differs only in forms, not in essence. The essence is the same. So the essential idea is that the human being needs to return to spirit. The idea is that you have something in Prakriti because you have a physical body. You have an etheric body, you have an astral body, you have a mental and causal body and all the rest. And you also have an immortal soul, an Atman, a spirit. But the proportion between those two is totally skewed in favor of the material. Like you can feel your body, you are tormented by energies, by emotions, by thoughts. But when it comes to yourself, to your Atman, to your spirit to your immortal nature, most people cannot feel it, point at it. It's not a direct experience of the human being. And therefore the tenet in spirituality, not only Indian and not only Tantric, is that you have lost your way in the matter. You may be immortal spirit, but that immortal spirit is lost in some of your pockets. You don't know where it is. You don't work with it. You don't feel it. And because of this, all you do is that you satisfy your physical body and its hormonal and chemical needs. You satisfy your energy body and all its energetical issues. You satisfy your emotional body and all its emotional cravings. You satisfy things which belong to one or another level of prakriti. But what your purusha is and how purusha is supposed to be half of your reality, at least, that you don't have. So the idea is ignorance, forgetfulness, has made you not spiritual, has made you drowning into matter. And there comes a time when some people like you, they turn the back on some material things which they had out there, and they turn towards something spiritual. Um, unfortunately, this idea creates a sort of a war or conflict. Like you cannot have the material things and the spiritual things. it It's like a conflict. Choose between mommy and daddy or something. In fact, the Tantric tradition even tells us that you don't have to really choose, but let's not go there because this becomes another lecture, then with another theme. So the idea is that one way or another, the human beings who wish spirituality, they want to go in their crown chakra and they want to discover this Purusha. They want to awaken this Purusha Which is eternal. And you cannot influence it in any way. You cannot; It exists even if you don't pay attention to it. But you are not aware of it. It's not actualized. It's like you are carrying a treasure. But you don't know that you have that treasure. In your pocket. Or on top of your head. Or wherever it is. And thus the general tenet in spirituality is. That the human being needs to go to Purusha. In Buddhism that's clear. The lower part. Prakriti is called Samsara, and that's like endless reincarnation and pain. Sometimes joy, sometimes pain. When you are young, you feel good. When you are old, you feel sick and weak. And life is just an alternance of pleasure and pain and all that. And uh, therefore, Samsara is not good according to Buddha, and you have to go to Nirvana. Nirvana is really good. Nirvana means pure spirit. Nirvana means eternity transcendence. Therefore, there exists this feeling in spirituality even if it's tackled in a different way in tantric and non-tantric spiritualities, there exists this feeling that the human being needs to awaken spirit. That spirit has to be found. It has to be actualized in your life. And that simply says you have to go from matter, which you have too much of, to spirit. Which means the direction Of the evolution. Is like in Udhyana Bandha. And it's like in the headstand. It's from Muladhara to Sahasrara. Even in Kundalini Yoga. It says that Kundalini. Which is the symbol of Shakti. Awakens. She wants to meet with Shiva. To make love with him and become one. So Kundalini is rising through the chakras. And when she reaches Sahasrara. There she unites with Shiva. And that is Nirvana. That is bliss. Remember, Shiva does not go to Kundalini. Kundalini goes to Shiva. That means spirituality is up, 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 up. It's never down. There is a serious fallacy in some New Age teachings which are uh, advising people to go down. In spirituality, it's always up. Heaven is up. The hell is down or something like that. Not necessarily hell, but matter or heaviness is down. <clears throat> okay, you can say all these are symbolic. What use is up and down. They are relative. Correct. But this, we are using some symbols to which we can relate as about gravitation, body, and all of that. To make the long story short, these three forces which we mentioned, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, which have three specific energies, they have a different effect on the spiritual practitioner and on the world. Brahma creates and creates and creates. I remember one of my spiritual teachers who was a bit on the Vedantic side of the teachings, a bit of a fundamentalistic Vedantic teacher, and uh, somebody asked him, are you not interested to have children? And his answer was typically Vedantic. He said, why would I make efforts to bring another miserable soul in this terrible, painful world of samsara? Like, like he simply said, if I create, what's the result? Something will come from Sahasrara down to Muladhara. I've got plenty of that already. And everybody has got plenty of that already. You want to create some more, like you want to just enhance this dream, this is a dream. You want to add to this dream? He didn't feel that was right. And therefore, this kind of attitude, which is radical, it's one, and it's not necessarily a tantric attitude, but this kind of attitude, which is so very clear, shows a spiritual person like that was not interested in Brahma. The same spiritual teacher was confessing to one pupil, another pupil, who told me about this story, that when he was young and he went into spirituality, he felt he could be a great artist. He had a huge creativity. And he felt that he could write amazing poetry and things like this. And he said, at some point I sat down and I had to think what I want to do with my life. Do I want to become a poet or do I want to become an enlightened being? Or a Buddha? No, Like, be a poet or be a Buddha? Somebody would say, well, couldn't he have done both? Maybe. At that time, he did not understand that he could make them both. And he felt he had to choose. Do I have to spend 30 years, like, I don't know which poets, to create dictionary of rhymes and to know all the vocabulary of the language and to get an amazing handling of the words so that I can write poetry which will make people get goosebumps? Or can I invest my time in standing on my head and doing meditation and going in Sahasrara? And this man had chosen, I don't want to be a collateral Brahma. I don't want to create, create an Eiffel Tower, create a pyramid of Keops, create a poem, create a book, you know, like agglomerate the world with more and more things brought from spirit into matter. There's plenty of that, and I have been caught into that for a million years. Now what I want is that I want to take matter, at least the matter of my body, even my sexual matter, and I want to sublime it in my crown chakra. I want to dematerialize myself, not materialize more. I don't have the ambition to accomplish something here into this. Because I don't believe in this. I want out of this. I want here. And therefore, there exists in spirituality a powerful, resorptive current, which simply says, I want to go back home. I want to go into the void. I want to go into the nirvana. I want to go into pure spirit. That's why uh, the yogis of India, and especially the Kashmirian tantrics, they have seen these three Forces of God, faces of God, but each one is accompanied by an energy, is is substantiated, it is backed, it is made possible by an energy. They have seen these three energies of creation, preservation, and dissolution. They have seen it from the standpoint of the spiritual practice. And they have said, which one of these three arrows, I made three arrows there, one down, one horizontal, and one up. Which one of these three arrows fits to Buddha, to Milarepa, to Ramakrishna? Like, which one of these energies did they follow? And they found out immediately, which is obvious, that all the radical spiritualists, all the crazy spiritualists, they always went like this. They didn't care about this, and they didn't care about this. They were all for this. Like, too much of this, too much of this. Too much time spent on this and on this. Now it's time to go up again, unconditionally, not to any compromise. Just like, go there and do that. It's a sort of a radical urge towards that. Automatically then, it came to realize that the energies of Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva are not equally important for the spiritual practitioners. From the standpoint of the universe and of the existence of the universe, they are. But when it comes to spiritual practitioners, spiritual practitioners are not interested into this too much. Okay, let's make a parenthesis. Some tantric spiritual practitioners may be interested into this because they have a holistic image of the whole. But that's very rare in spirituality. Nine spiritualists out of ten... Or 99 spiritualists out of 100. They will have this simplified model of the universe. I don't want to create. I want to dissolve. I want to just dematerialize. My time is up. It's over. I want like Buddha to go away. The word nirvana itself is a very scary word for the people who are not interested into this. Because nirvana means extinction. Buddha says life is caused by desire and you have to extinguish your desires like you blow the flame of a candle. There are many people among you that if you would be asked to live without desire even for 24 hours, you might commit suicide because life without desire is like, like people cannot even conceive it. We have ambitions, we have desires, we want to accomplish. Suddenly you took all of that from me. It's like I lost everything. It's like I, everything becomes empty. There's nothing to accomplish, nothing to do. And that's why this attitude, this radical attitude that I want out of here is very scary. And only some people that have an enormous spiritual aspiration, they do that. Like Jesus, who says, you know, if your right arm keeps you from going to the kingdom of heaven... Cut off your right arm because it's better to reach to the kingdom of heaven without your right arm than not to reach at all and then to blame your right arm. To say, the right arm kept me back. Screw the right arm. Cut it. It's better to, you know, like, this is a radical attitude worthy of Jesus. You know, like, you go up there, no questions asked. You know, it's like a suicidal impulse. I want out of here. I don't want to look back. I don't want to see anything. In yoga, we do have such men and women. Most of the great masters have been crazy people like that. That's what makes the creme de la creme in yoga and in spirituality. Men and women who went into a cave, on a mountain, in a jungle, in an ashram, they didn't eat good food, they didn't get great clothes, they didn't do and they all the time worked on sahasrara to reach pure spirit. That's what makes the greatness of some spiritual practitioners. And many people admire them exactly for that. Like, wow. These were people who are ready to give up everything. Honestly, I tell you, I talk to you as a teacher, having worked with people for all these number of years. Not everybody has that desire. There is a, a number of people who come to spirituality who are ready to kill everything. Who are ready to to give up everything, to find the infinite, to find the transcendental, to find the spirit. They know that they will find something which is incomparable, beyond space, beyond time, absolute, perfect, immutable, eternal, infinite, and all that. But it's so difficult to believe into that when you are not into it. Because it looks like you have to give up everything for something which is utopic, and maybe it doesn't even exist Who can guarantee the existence of spirit, right? Karl Marx and my other materialistic philosophers, they simply said nature, Prakriti, we agree with that, exists. But spirit, Purusha, it doesn't exist. It's just a figment of the imagination of some people. And there is nobody who can demonstrate it. Marxism cannot be logically sued into court and have a case and demonstrate implacably that Spirit exists. nobody has demonstrated the existence of spirit, even people like Buddha and Jesus and others, they are controversial. There are people during the communist times, there were Russian philosophers who said that Jesus was just a stupid schizophrenic, a man with a mental problem. You know like what does what can you demonstrate? Nothing. You cannot demonstrate something which is beyond matter, and that's why, of course, not everybody is ready. To have this madness, this intuitive madness... That now I give up everything and I want to find pure spirit. And then I can decide what I do next step. What will the next step be? Like Jesus says, right? Jesus says, seek you first the kingdom of heaven... And then all the rest shall be given to you hundredfold. Like Jesus says, there is a priority. If you are not enlightened and if you haven't found your spirit... Then what's the first emergency? To make $5 million and live on the rent, live on the interest, like become financially independent and secure, and then search for Jesus, search for God, or first find God, and then if you still have time and interest, make $5-10 and live in financial comfort. Jesus says if you die three weeks from now, what would have served you more? That you reach spirituality or that you reach material comfort. Therefore Jesus says there is a priority. First reach the kingdom of heaven. And then when you have done that. If you want to become a billionaire. But then you become an enlightened billionaire. It makes a huge difference. Because you've saved your soul already. You've, you've solved that issue. So not the other way around. Not first the cart and then the horses. First the horses and then the cart. There is a proper priority priority of things so taking into account this then the such yogis and such spiritualists have noticed that um, the energy which is most propitious for them what really interests them is this is the energy which goes up imagine these three energies the arrows which i put there like three rivers there is a river which flows from spirit to matter And if you throw a piece of wood in it, that piece of wood will be carried downhill. And there is a river which runs horizontally. And if you throw a piece of wood here, it goes here. And then there is a river which runs vertically up. And if you throw a piece of wood in it here, it will be carried here. And therefore, out of these three rivers, out of these three energies of God, this one is the one which naturally takes you to Sahasrara. And therefore, this, one, this is the one to be followed. Like when you bathe in this river, this river without any effort takes you back home. And thus, out of the three aspects of God, the yogis of India, among others, they have chosen Shiva. Now you understand what Shiva starts emerging at. Because yes, there is a mythology, a mythology, and there are lots of things, but technically speaking, Shiva means the dissolution of the universe. The force which dematerializes the universe and turns it into pure spirit. What returns things back home. And the yogis wanted to be in this. So the yogis said, we like Shiva. Our favorite is Shiva. We are fans of Shiva. Not of Brahma. We don't want to bring more things down here. We want to take things from down here up there. As a result of this, in Indian spirituality, for example, just to give you a practical consequence, there in, in the whole of India, that's what the books say. I cannot verify it, but I've read it in scholarly books, so it probably is true. In the whole of India, there exists one temple. In the whole of India, just one temple consecrated to Brahma. Because if they thought if there would be none... It's like Brahma is punished or guilty or Brahma is the devil or something. And it is not. Brahma is okay. But spiritual practitioners are not very interested in Brahma. So if, for example, any one of you wants to write a book, build a house, give birth to a baby, then that's Brahma. You are creating things. You are co-participating with the Creator in an act of creation, and in tantra, all that is okay, by the way. But now I'm talking about a radical, black and white type of spiritualist. So Brahma, one temple in the whole of India. The second force is Vishnu. I don't know if you realize that this is not a separate force. It's just 50% Shiva, 50% Brahma. It's like a zigzag line. Creation. More creation, more destruction. More creation, more destruction. And the final result is zero. Which means preservation. As maintenance. This force of preservation is 50% creation. But 50% destruction. In India, generally, the Vaishnava, the Vishnu type of spirituality. Is the spirituality of the householders. Like people that spiritually, and there is no insult in this when I say it. People who spiritually are middle of the way, mediocre, lukewarm. Like I want to do some spirituality, but I'm not capable to go in a cave and live in the forest and consecrate my love to my life to God hundred percent. I'm 50-50. This is the Vaishnava spirituality, in which there is a part of spirituality, but there is also a part of the other. There is a balance between the two. Vaishnava spirituality is generally considered to be a mild Spirituality. And finally. There is Shiva. And now you understand why Shiva. Is the lord of the yogis. The founder of yoga. This is the crazy one. Who embodies the energy of those. Who want out. It's the river which goes up towards Sahasrara. It's the Kundalini going up. Wanting to join Shiva. And reach ecstasy. Reach immortality. And thus. Most of the yogis from India are Shaivas. Of course, for normal ignorant people, this is a sort of a cult. It's translated as symbols. But there is a metaphysical meaning to it. And the real practitioners, the deep practitioners, they know that if I am On the line of Shiva, if I'm in the lineage of Shiva, it means I'm a person who looks for sublimation. I'm a person who looks to go in Sahasrara. I'm a person who focuses mostly on the dissolution, dissolving of the universe. On the destruction of the reality. On the resorption of matter back into spirit. That's what I want to do in this life. And of course, that's what most of the great spiritual masters, men and women, did All their lives. That's the reason for which in Agama, in yoga, and especially in Kashmiri Shaivism. That's why it's called Shaivism. It's called Shaivism because first of all it reflects this urge for going up, for going to Sahasrara, for going to dissolution. And it's a choice. It's a choice in life. There are two more meanings of this concept of uh, Shiva. Which rounded up. Uh, The word Shiva in uh, Sanskrit, it actually means beneficent, good. And the general theory speaking about God, not necessarily as Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, simply says the divine has to be characterized by three characteristics Satyam, Shivam, Sundaram. Satyam, you know the word from yoga because it means truthfulness, Shivam means goodness, and Sundaram means beauty, like in Tripura Sundari, like in Sundari. So the general concept says the divine consciousness is true. Because if God is not true, it means you are searching for an illusion. God is the absolute truth, the ultimate truth. As the Brahmins of Varanasi taught the Theosophical Society, there is no religion higher than truth. Because we are searching for the truth. And Buddha, when he discovered nirvana, he considered that that is the ultimate truth. So, the divine consciousness is true, because if not, it means we are selling illusions. It's just like Karl Marx would say, what are you guys doing in a yoga school? Your yoga teacher is trying to send you to nirvana or to purusha. Well, sorry to disappoint you, but it doesn't exist. I, Karl Marx, believe that spirit doesn't even exist. So therefore, all your yoga sucks. It's not worth anything because you are just searching for an illusion which will never happen. You are just chasing a dream, an impossible dream. So the Hindu gurus have said the divine is satyam. Shivam, beneficial, like the divine consciousness has a certain beneficent thing like life exists for a purpose and that purpose is benefic we may not like life and many people say i wish i was never born who sent me in this body who sent me on this planet who sent me in this world look what a miserable thing and how much pain there is like depressive people tend to go against life but life must have a positive purpose So God is Shivam, and that's why they like this name. Shiva is the resorber, and Shiva also is a category or a quality of God, that God is beneficent. And Sundaram, God is beautiful. Like Rumi says in one of his poems of enlightenment, he says, I wish I could see you with a hundred eyes. Like he has the vision of God, and it's like... You know, it's like, I would eat you, I would swallow you. It's like, you, God, are so enchanting and so blissful that I can't stop. You know, I want you. I wish I had a hundred eyes to see you a hundred times or fifty times more. You know, it's like, why? Because the cosmic consciousness is beautiful. It is translated in a concept of beauty. So, the second reason in India for which they like, the yogis like this name of Shiva, is that Shiva already packs two things. Shiva packs dissolution, rising, and Shiva also packs in its meaning the goodness, the beneficence of the cosmic consciousness. And then there comes a third reason which upsets the others and rocks things. And this is one thing which people who haven't studied. Tantric yoga uh, deeply, they don't know. And it produces endless confusions of terminology. The Tantric yogis, instead of calling spirit and nature Purusha and Prakriti, they call them Shiva and Shakti. But here, pay attention. That Shiva and Shakti, when you say Shiva and Shakti, And when you say Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, it's Shiva here and Shiva here. But it's not the same. The same word is used for two different categories. The Shiva from Hinduism means one third of God, which dematerializes the universe. The Shiva in Tantra, it means the masculine part of the universe, which is transcendental spirit, as opposed to matter. So Shiva in Tantra and Shiva in Hinduism, although they both of them come from India, they are two very different concepts. The Shiva of the Tantrics is not the Shiva of the Orthodox Hindus. That's why to solve this, two attempts have been made. Either to call the Shiva from Hinduism with a different name, and that is done usually by saying we have Brahma, Vishnu, Rudra, Shiva has a thousand and eight names. And they simply chose another name. Not Shiva. Anything but not Shiva. So they say Brahma Vishnu Rudra. Or another frequently used is Brahma Vishnu Mahadeva. And then it's Shiva and Shakti. And this means different things. Because the Shiva from Tantra means the masculine part and pure spirit. It means Purusha. And if you say you have Shiva and Shakti, then where is Brahma? Where is Vishnu? Where did you leave them out? Brahma and Vishnu and the Shiva of the Hindus is included in this concept of Shiva from Tantra. Here is a simple scriptural proof. A great Tantric master from the 10th century, Abhinavagupta, arguably the greatest Tantric master that ever lived in the history of India, which is a very big thing to say, Abhinavagupta in one of his poems says glory to Shiva, the Lord of the universe who creates, preserves and maintains countless universes, hiding under his own obscurity, obscuration and revealing himself through his own grace. What? Glory to Shiva, the Lord of the universe who creates, preserves and destroys. But I thought that Brahma creates in Hinduism. In Shaivism, Shiva creates, preserves, destroys like Shiva has swallowed Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva as meaning and is all of them and does two things more. Creates, preserves and destroys universes, hides under the Maya and reveals himself through grace, through spirituality. So Shiva in Kashmiri Shaivism has five activities. God has five activities in which Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva from Hinduism are included But they are not called Brahma Vishnu Shiva. They are called Shiva simply. The five-fold activity of Shiva. That's why I want you to be aware of the fact that the word Shiva has been misused. And one solution was to make, to give up Shiva here. Brahma Vishnu Mahadeva, Brahma Vishnu Rudra. But of course some, because this belongs to the masses. Hinduism is a mass phenomenon in India. You could not convince the masses to give up their beloved Shiva. Moreover, because Shiva was resorption and was very spiritual. And then the, some tantrics, especially the Kashmiri Shaivists, they said, OK, keep Shiva and then we are going to choose another name for Shiva for us. So in Kashmiri Shaivism, instead of using Shiva, which they use, inevitably it's a cultural thing. Instead of this, they use another name of Shiva, which is Bhairava. Bhairava is a formidable terrible name of Shiva because Bhaya means fear and Bhairava means frightening the frightful one and is represented like a god which has the hair like this like you watch horror movies and your hair would be like "Ah!" standing like this which is actually a symbol of the rising of Kundalini when you get goosebumps all over in your body and you get this electricity going through your body so it's a very smart metaphor So the Tantrics of Kashmir, instead of calling them Shiva and Shakti, they said, okay, keep Shiva, don't get upset, keep the name of Shiva, and we are going to use Bhairava and Bhairavi. Instead of Shiva and Shakti, Bhairava and Bhairavi. And in this way, they tried to make clear that our Bhairava is not their Shiva. But normally, people who don't know what I told you tonight... They are incapable to make this difference. And they think Shiva is Shiva. And that's because Shiva is presented like a teacher of yoga. It's not that one. That's a statue of Lakshmi. And uh, Shiva is presented like a dancer. And there is the Shiva Linga. And the symbols are the same. The symbols are the same. But for some people they mean one thing. And for other people they mean another thing. And very often in India itself, people are making a total salad Of all these meanings. That's why the workshop which I'm teaching next week. Is called Kashmiri Shaivism. That's why some yogis are saying we are Shaivas. It's beyond just a cult. I mean the normal ignorant people. They may transform it into a cult. Or into a religion. But the spiritual seekers. Under the name of Shiva or Bhairava. Each way you want to take it. They have seen these three things that Shiva is the destroyer of the universe, the one that dematerializes matter into spirit, that Shiva represents the aspect of the divine, which means beneficence, like the divine has created life with a purpose and loves you. You mean something. You are here for a purpose. You are not just created so that a sadistic god looks at you like rats in a labyrinth, how you are tortured by a stupid life, inconsequentially and painfully. There is a deeper meaning. God actually loves you and life has value and life leads somewhere. There is a meaning, even if you don't see it in one lifetime. But life in general is a process which flows somewhere. So Shiva is a good name for that because it's a beneficence that God is auspicious and beneficent. And also that Shiva in Tantra means Bhairava and it means the pure consciousness, it means the supreme consciousness. And that's why to be a Shaiva, it means to be beneficial, to give meaning to life, it means to go for sublimation, to go for dissolution, to go for Sahasrara, and it means to go for Sahasrara again, because it's pure spirit, it's pure consciousness. So thus, for the spiritualists of India... These symbols of Shiva, they are just symbols, external symbols, but they became very beautiful because for them they mean something very important from a spiritual standpoint. That's why (coughs) the yogis from India, they were not afraid or ashamed to say, yes, I'm a worshipper of Shiva. Not because I'm looking for a dancing deity with four arms which I want to worship. That's banal. That's that's not the real thing. The real thing is that I'm looking for this ascensional force which takes me up, and all the things which I said before. That's why the yogis have proclaimed themselves very often in India as Shaivas, but beyond just a cult thing. So Shaivism in India has been everywhere in India. It has been in the middle of India, in the south of India, and you have Shaiva Siddhanta in the south. the... <coughs> Vira Shaivism in around the center of India and in a part of India in the extreme north, exactly as in Tai Chi in China, you have the northern Yang style and the southern Yin style and all that. Exactly in the same way in India, when it came to Shaiva practices, they developed different lineages and branches. One such lineage of Shaiva practice has appeared in Kashmir, which is the pearl, the crown chakra of India, is like the highest, northernmost point of India. And in Kashmir, for a variety of reasons, out of which we cannot exclude the grace of God, and uh, some resonance, a mysterious resonance, history shows that in Kashmir, out of all the Shaiva teachings of India, in Kashmir there has appeared the most exclusive, the most exquisite the most elite the top form everything which exists in india in the shaiva culture in the shaiva spirituality cannot compare to kashmir kashmir is number one history is very twisted because kashmir in the 12th century got converted to islam and today the population of kashmir is 90 something percent islamic and in 1993 the Islamists of Kashmir, because they thought that, because there are 5% Hindus still left in Kashmir, that's why India is still clinging to Kashmir. So to make it clear, they started killing those 5% from Kashmir, just to make Kashmir 100% Islamic, and then they can tell to India, now let us be together with Pakistan. We want to join Pakistan. We want to be a Muslim country, not with India, which is not predominantly a Muslim country. So, Kashmir became Islamic in dominantly Islamic in the 12th century and in the 20th century they killed even the few Hindus who were left there. Today there are probably not more than 500 Hindus living in Kashmir and all the teachings of Kashmiri Shaivas which are an amazing thing which are unseen in the in the rest of Indian spirituality they practically don't exist today it's almost a joke to call this discipline called trika or it has other names, to call it Kashmiri Shaivis, because it's no longer in Kashmir. It's dead. There are only archaeological monuments witnessing to its existence in Kashmir. But factually, it has been chased out of Kashmir. So the funny thing is, funny and sad at the same time, is that Kashmiri Shaivis survives outside of Kashmir. It survives in Kopangan. It survives in other parts of India. It survives in the United States. It survives among Sanskritologists in Europe and so on. But in Kashmir, you go in Kashmir to look for Kashmiri Shaivism, you can see some ruins, some statues, some things which are left there from when it was flourishing. So that's the amazing story of the Kashmiri Shaivism. And that is, uh, there's way more to it, but I just told you the metaphysical reason for which it's called Kashmiri Shaivism. Because Otherwise, for many people, it sounds like irrelevant. Why does Agama do this? What has Agama got to do with Kashmir? And Shaivism, isn't this just a Hindu thing, and Agama is a rational school of yoga, which is trying to stay away from, as much as possible, these cultish things and so on. I hope the explanations that you have received tonight, they will make you understand the true scope of things. That Shaivism means the going along this dematerializing energy which goes up, And therefore, it represents pure spirituality. It represents the most pure trend in spirituality. And the yogis say, yes, from this standpoint, we have to admit we are Shaivas. If you want to put that as a humanoid figure and you call that Shiva, then if that stands as a symbol for this, then yes, we are that. Yes, we like Shiva. Not that Shiva is a person who lived on the face of the earth like Jesus Christ, And we are Christians. It's not that Shiva is like a person that lived on earth like Buddha. And we are Buddhists. No. Shiva is not a person who lived on earth. Shiva is just a symbol of what I said earlier. And that's why to be Shaiva. It means to participate. To sympathize. To join into that. And this Shaiv is, is Kashmirian. Simply because Kashmir generated the best ever brand of Shaivism which ever existed in India. In this way, that's the, the rational reason, the correct reason for understanding Kashmiri Shaivism as a definition what it is. And it makes you understand what we teach in such workshops. Because everybody speaks in awe and everybody knows that Swami and other advanced students in Agama... They are praising Kashmiri Shaivism like you should hear about it, you should study, you should do it because it's something special. It is something special indeed because it represents one of the most exclusive spiritual teachings that has ever been made on the face of this earth. There are countless Sanskritologists and scholars who say Kashmiri Shaivism is the top thing ever produced by India which is a huge statement because India produced Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, 20 religions, and plus all the Shaiva, Vaishnava and other things, plus yoga, plus tantra, plus like yoga. India has been very creative in producing spirituality and has done it for the last 5,000 years. And to say that something is the best thing which India produced is almost like saying it's the best thing which the world has ever produced. There are many, many scholars who have studied thoroughly and eventually they put the pen down and they said, yes, yes, that that's it. It's the best thing ever. It's like there has never been created in terms of practical spirituality anything as big, as good, as perfect as that. That's why here in Agama we are very happy and fortunate to have inherited this. It's a especially good spiritual karma to be able that in your spiritual quest, you can encounter hundred of them. I don't want to nominalize any one of them because I don't want to put down any spirituality. But it is at the same time worth saying that not all the spiritual methods are equally quick, equally effective equally good in all situations no you could go and go in the christian monastery and do prayer 12 hours per day or you could do yoga 12 hours per day and then you could verify the results between the two comparing it that's why we know it's inevitable that not all the methods not all the lineages not all the forms of spirituality are identically effective and uh, identically powerful And the statement then goes that Kashmiri Shaivism is the top. It simply goes to the top. For us in Agama, as I said, this is a subject of gratitude. Because somehow, some of us must have had an excellent karma to be able to be initiated and to know Kashmiri Shaivism, which has disappeared even in Kashmir. Kashmiri Shaivism is not Kashmirian anymore. It's out of Kashmir And by uh, wonderful synchronicity in a place like in Agama, in Kopangan, Kashmiri Shaivism is alive. It is being practiced and its methods are formidable. That's why for us Kashmiri Shaivism is one of the pillars of Agama. It represents the deepest metaphysical knowledge that we have in Agama. You can say that the ultimate philosophy, the ultimate ideology of Agama is Kashmiri Shaivism, that's the core, that's the deepest, when you dig deepest, that's what you are going to find. If you will study years and years with Agama, that's what you will study in the final years. The advanced teachings of Agama are 80%, 75% about Kashmiri Shaivism. And uh, again and again, we are grateful to Shiva eventually, let's put it now in a religious way, We are grateful to the guru of yoga, to Shiva, that such a rare form of yoga is available here nowadays. And this is why Kashmiri Shaivism is one of the, if not the biggest gem, the biggest diamond in the crown of Agama. And uh, those of you who will have the possibility, if you don't have the possibility these days, maybe some other time, in some other year, or in some other place, you will manage to catch some of the Kashmiri Shaivism teachings of Agama and in this way you will have the opportunity to judge by yourselves, to see for yourselves if such statements are exaggerated or if they go together. As you can see in Agama when we teach you asanas, pranayama and all those things, we make some interesting statements and slowly, slowly they demonstrate to be true. You can actually verify them. I will state that the same thing is valid about Kashmiri Shaivism, that everything which has been said about Kashmiri Shaivism tonight can be verified. It's not just a statement which cannot be substantiated. Uh, It was my intention, it was my desire to clarify uh, this strange concept because the name itself, as our uh, administration tells us, It's not a very marketable name. you know. It's like Kashmiri Shaiv sounds like abracadabra. It sounds very bizarre and limited and something. And yet this strange name is hiding something which is of the highest spiritual value. With this, I have conveyed the message for tonight. It is enough for tonight. If you have questions, of course, ask me either during the Q&A sessions when I'm there or during the workshops or other lectures that i'm having with this we have finished for tonight thank you for joining this satsang and i hope it clarified some things i hope you understood the old hindu tradition about creation preservation and dissolution and uh, i will see you in the coming satsangs in the coming weeks with this we have finished